have for each other, like like you're passionate, a mother to their child is maternal, romantic, infatuation. Personally, I'm infatuated with Rihanna, for example. Uh, (laughs) Good that you know that and that it's not a reality. (laughs) There we go, season two. Welcome to Deep Thoughts, Science and Social Justice. I'm your host, Pardeep, and this is an interview podcast where we take a deep dive into the struggles, triumphs, and personal stories of minorities in the sciences, arts, and public service. And to kick off this season, we're doing a series all about the science of, and this is the science of love, the science of comedy, the science of AI, you name it, we got it, let's get it going. Allow me to introduce Abby Rosenblum matchmaker and founder of the social modern matchmaking she meets with singles one-on-one to help them find love in real life so rather than swiping and chatting for days and we all been there she works with people to help them find a real authentic connection through blind dates singles events and the community and it's not just abby she has a whole team of barbers stylists personal trainers dating coaches therapists and even astrologists working together to find a match. So how, how long have you been matchmaking? Uh, three, a little over three years now. Crazy three, to think about. Three years. Three years. Like, gosh. So, you know, matchmaking is, it to me, it's, it's kind of, um, what's the word? Like, uh, abstract matchmaking. Matchmaking is kind of an abstract kind of thing isn't it like it's two people you put them in a room as the uh you as the scientist in the room i feel like uh you know there's no exact you know formula to it so sometimes that frustrates me and i can imagine it may frustrate you a little bit as we talk about it well that's the thing like i'm like what is the process what happens when you when you put two and two together like you get four but when you put these two people in a room like what happens so like and let's just define it. What is matchmaking? Because it's a very abstract kind of thing, matchmaking. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it requires, I just feel like it's like a whole nother set of skills that I don't have. But those who do have it are just like miracle. I feel like they're just miracle workers and just, they're just gifts putting these people together. So, so what, how would you define matchmaking to somebody who doesn't know what it is? Oh, of course. First of all, you are way too kind to me. I don't think I'm a miracle worker. Um, you know, I really just say that matchmaking is facilitating a connection between two people that, you know, otherwise maybe wouldn't have met. Um, and that's really what I do. You know, I get to know people on a very deep level, you know, their dreams, their hopes, their values, you know, the things that they want in a partner, their ideal relationship. Um, and then I search for that person for them. Um, and then I also, you know, give them the tools so that they can have a successful relationship. You know, some of the things you kind of mentioned, you know, some of the tools might be getting a beard trim. It might be, you know, working with an astrologist or any number of things. Wow. That is so then. So in that case, so you help, I, I assume they have some kind of questionnaire or something and you find out like this person and who they are and what they're passionate about and 
trying to find their match. So like, what is a good match? Let's, let's say you have like, who's like a, I don't know. I was trying to think of an example of somebody we might mutually know like a celebrity or something, but, Mm -hmm. but what, what is a good match? Like how, how, when you're, when you're looking for a connection for somebody and you see someone else, you're like, that's the person. What does a good match look like relative to the info that you learn from somebody who's looking for that match? Right. Uh, that's such a good question because it can be different for so many people, obviously, you know, depending on what they're looking for. Um, but I would say it comes down to a few similar things. So one is values. You know, I definitely want the people who work have shared values, you know, so if someone really values family and community, um, you know, someone who maybe is like a nomad van life person, you know, that really, that wouldn't align. (laughs) Um, So, you know, values are definitely probably up there. And then, you know, of course you need physical attraction. Um, You know, I would like to think, I would like to live in a world where, you know, I could just find someone who is, you know, kind and compassionate and there you go. But you have to be physically attracted to this person because hopefully you're going to eventually be intimate and have sex with this person that you're with. Um, And then the other part too is being comfortable with that person, um, which I think kind of comes if you have the shared values and the attraction, um, usually that part comes too. Wow. My mind is like just being blown right now. So, so say, um, I love it. Happy to blow your mind. (laughs) You know, so are you nervous when you have these two folks that you hope will connect and you set them up on a blind date and you know, they're out there somewhere in the world having their drinks or having their dinner? Like, are you, do you get nervous when these two people meet for the first time? And (laughs) are you like, oh, I really hope it works. They'll be such a great match. Like, how, how do you, how do you uh, feel when your two matches come together finally and and they're like sparking somewhere? <laughs> I feel amazing. Like when people text me and after a first date and they're like, oh, I had such a good time. So-and-so was so great. I can't wait to see them again. I mean, that's like the greatest feeling, you know? Nice. So nice. I love that. But, you know, I try to not get nervous or anxious for them just because I already know that they're feeling so much of that since it's a blind date with (laughs) people working with me. So, um, you know, just like I try to have all of my clients, you know, set an intention for their dates so that they're not as nervous. Um, you know, I try to do that for them too. Like when I know they're on a date, you know, I have like a nice little happy thought for them that it's going well. And, you know, since we're on the topic of emotions, I think that this is a perfect segue segue because when we're talking dating and we're talking love and intimacy, it's, it's a complicated series of emotions that are all there trying to make sense of this person that you're trying to date. And you have, right. you know, all kinds of feelings in your, in your stomach or butterflies. You have maybe fear, nervousness, excitement, shyness, happiness. Maybe you just straight up click. Maybe you just don't. Uh, and you have all these different kinds of of love that people have for each other. Like, pa- like you're passionate. A mother to their child is maternal, romantic. Infatuation. Personally, I'm infatuated with Rihanna, for example. 
Uh, or, Good thing you know that, and that it's not a reality. But. Yeah. <laughs> Compassionate love may be something you have with your best friend or something of that nature. And, you know, a lot of the science, it's interesting how a lot of the science really, it, a lot of the brain science is kind of imprinted with, with these complicated emotions, whereas the science of complicated emotions gets even more complicated the more complicated the emotion is. Oh my god. Yeah. I'm confused. So, <laughs> so 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 it's like this. Like, you know, a lot of scientists theorize that you know, that there that there are two kinds of emotions. There's like simple emotion that's really short term and uh maybe uh immediate and you get over it right quick. But then there's the longer, more complicated emotions like envy or jealousy or 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 sadness or 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 anything of that nature love that can last for hours days even years uh and scientists are like yo why is it that these emotions like stay with us for so long like why can't you just get over it sometimes and so right and so like a lot of researchers were like we need to figure this out like is there a biological basis for emotions that are really complicated uh when you look at your kid or you look at your loved one or you look at this person you think is really hot and you want to be with them like how does the brain look when it's when it's when it's on love i guess and so what had happened is that um so so first of all like any did i miss any emotions there is there another really prominent one that that needs to be put into the mix here Ooh, I mean, I guess would rejection or feeling rejected, that's a big one that comes up with dating. Rejection is another one. And, you know, I don't like getting rejected. No one likes getting it. But, man, it hurts, doesn't it? It's the worst. It's the worst. And so... I will always remember, like, the biggest rejection I had. You know, when you're so into someone and they don't want anything to do with you. Oh, my God. Horrible. It's the worst feeling. Like... (laughs) You 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 remember your greatest loves, but man, do you remember your greatest rejections too? Right. <laughs> yeah, you will like never forget those. <laughs> you never forget them, and you know what had happened is that you know scientists who are trying to figure out these emotions realize that these emotions that last a really long time might be really prominent when you try to look at the brain under EEG or fMRI or things of that nature, and so. There were some scientists back in the 90s who tried to figure this out. And so what they did is that they put some EEG like probes on the on the somebody's scalp, which, which is uh, measures the uh, uh, you know electrical energy off off the off the brain, and took these healthy individuals and showed them pictures of you know their 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 loved one or somebody who who they really love and care about, and then neutral photos without any like sexual imagery or or any kind of relationship, maybe a picture of a dog that they don't know, and then a picture of their wife or girlfriend or whatever, and their kid. And they found that those people who had those really complicated emotions also had significantly more complicated brain activity as well, particularly in like surface areas of the brain and and surface cortical regions of the brain. And in addition to that, in parallel, actually, a whole separate team of scientists did the same thing, but they used fMRI instead, which measures blood flow and metabolism. So basically, when your brain is working, more and more blood gets pumped to it, 
so that it can need because it needs more oxygen to do more work. And so what happened is that in this in this separate study, they did a sort of similar approach where they showed pictures of the person's loved one or like neutral photos and found, guess what? The people that are looking at pictures of their loved ones also have way more brain oxygen use as well. And on top of that, yeah. And on top of that, there are certain regions of the brain, like the ventral tegmental area, caudate nucleus, putamen. These are all structures that are associated with positive experience, rewarding experience. And uh, these are also areas of the brain that that respond to like opioids and cocaine. <laughs> Whoa. So when they say love is a drug, do you agree? <laughs> <laughs> I was literally just about to say that, you know, like drunk on love, love is a drug. Um, wow. I guess the science is behind it. <laughs> the science is behind it. And so, you know, the, the question is like, do you, do you, do you really think that like, when you're with somebody and you're just in love with them and infatuated them that do you actually feel like you're, you're literally on a drug? And I guess, I guess so. I mean, do you believe that there are people out there who are just capable of just, just clicking, just immediately getting each other on site? Oh yeah. This is a touchy subject. You know, the whole love at first sight thing. I think there can be infatuation at first sight but I don't think there's a way you can love a complete stranger. That freaks me out. That makes me think that this person needs some therapy. <laughs> uh-huh. Infatuation at first sight. So yeah. how do you feel when that when you have infatuation at first sight? Mm, as opposed I, to after yeah. getting as opposed to after getting to know them and realizing you actually like them. Yeah, and you know what is probably one of my biggest obstacles in my work of matchmaking is combating this idea that everyone thinks they should know right away and there should be fireworks and there should be a spark and there should be this wild passionate chemistry with like a stranger that you've texted with for a week and now you've just had two drinks with like that just feels really red flaggy to me <laughs> red flaggy and you know I've been, I've been there too to a point where it's like yo I just had this date with this gorgeous lady and like I want her so badly like I want to text her right now I know she just got home and like I want to yeah. know what she's doing but I gotta stop myself because I gotta play <laughs> I gotta play it cool I gotta play it cool right you can't just blow up someone's phone how do you get how do you get over that infatuation when you just got off this date with this hot date and you don't want to seem like a nerd texting them constantly how do you get over that infatuation because it could end up backfiring Right. And something that, um, you know, I talk a lot with about people is when you do have that like instant chemistry or spark, it actually is a red flag um, of like, what is this person hitting on that is making me so comfortable? You know, maybe it's a past relationship or a past trauma or something where I just all of a sudden feel like I need to be with this person. Could also be that they're just really attractive too and that they're talking to you, um, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I think that when you have that connection, I'm not saying it's always a bad thing. It's something to note 
And it's something to be aware of because that's when those dates can turn into the marathon dates that are like, you know, five hours, six hours. You sleep with the person. You spend 24 hours with them. Um, And, you know, if you're looking for a more serious committed relationship, um, you know, that may not be the best way to start things off. Oh, so you're saying take it slow. Yes. And I will say too, you know, from my experience dating and from my experience matchmaking, you know, there are definitely relationships that start out very passionate like that, that work out, um, but only with a lot of communication and setting boundaries. Um, And, you know, some of the best relationships start out slow. Maybe it started out as a friendship. Um, Maybe you go on that first date and you like the person, you think they're cute, you want to get to know them more, but there's no like, oh my God, I have to see this person again. So you're saying that that infatuation that you're feeling that you want to be with that person right now and you want to just take them home and like just and just give them like all of you, you realize that you want to put on the brakes. You want to be like, hold on, let's let's let this be a slow burn instead of a firework. Let's kind of take our time with this and understand and understand our feelings. I mean, I feel like that's a, a technique in dating that maybe people don't know how to do. Like people, yeah. it's like dating is like a, it's like a skill almost. It really is. And everyone thinks that they know how to do it and then they start dating and then they need to come to me. <laughs> or a dating coach. Um, You know, it's weird because it's one of those things where people are just like, oh yeah, I know how to date even though I've never done it or even though I'm putting myself out there again after 20 years. Um, But there's nothing else where people just kind of like assume they know everything Um, like that. Like no one would say, oh, I'm just going to go be a neuroscientist and with no experience. (laughs) Mm. So what can one do to actually acquire skills on how to date because it's not like me because the neuroscience example like I could just open a textbook and just right I, I have a professor I have school and then you know there's like a hands-on thing and like I can actually go out there and like get trained and learn the skills and get a job I guess so mm-hmm. what what how do we train ourselves to to be better daters how do we coach ourselves or find or develop the skills so that we don't end up hurting the end or that we that we date properly. Right. Yeah, that is an amazing question and I will say I hate to say that it starts with looking at yourself. You know, I think the first thing when people want to date is they're just like, "Okay, I'm going to make a Hinge profile. I'm going to go on a million dates and you know, we're going to see where this goes." Um but they haven't thought about what they really want. They haven't thought about maybe like where they want their life to be. And they probably haven't really felt solid in themselves with being single yet, likely. Maybe they've done one or two of those, but usually people haven't done those three things. So those are really the key before you're like, okay, I'm going to, you know, my friends drunkenly made me a hinge profile and now I have 20 dates this week. Um, so, you know, again, start slow. I know that, you know, we're in a world of instant gratification where we all just, you know, want to find our future partner tomorrow. Um, but if you rush something like that, you'll probably end up very unhappy. (laughs) So in other words, maybe date yourself for a while and figure out what you like and, and figure out what you're into. 
and figure out, you know, where you want your life to be. You know, if you, and not that you have to have some specific thing, but it could just be like, hey, I want to be, like for me, I want to be a person that just brings more love into the world. You know, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing with that, you know, that's who I want to be. Um, you know, it doesn't have to mean like, okay, I'm living in New York and I have a, you know, million dollar apartment and I have this job. It can be that specific if you want. Um, but I think knowing that and then knowing how someone can complement your life is better than kind of waiting for a person to give your life meaning. Don't let another person give your life meaning. Know what you want. And sometimes, and you know, don't lead people on either. Like mm-hmm. you may, you might feel pressure to be with somebody because of family or friends or, you know, uh, <laughs> other, other reasons, but, um, you <laughs> might, you might, you might feel pressure to be with somebody because they're the only person there. Uh, and so for that reason, you might develop these feelings that you don't really have or, or feel like you have to go somewhere you really don't. So, so how do you, um, I guess in, in a situation like that, like, let's say you have a day and like you like what what are the red flags that you can recognize in yourself that not necessarily another person but what you're feeling what are the emotions that one might feel when they're really not clicking with somebody as opposed to clicking with somebody hmm well i feel like there is definitely like there are three things i use for first dates where if you can say yes to all three you should go on a second date so i'll start there of you know do you think the person's cute are you curious to get to know them more? And are you comfortable around them? So pretty much if you're feeling the opposite of those things, probably don't go on a second date. You know, if you're feeling completely uncomfortable, even just like being near someone, trust your gut on that one. Um, you know, I think a lot of times there isn't like something we can say that went wrong on a date. Like we can't say, oh, this person – ate their food weird or, you know, they smelled bad. Usually it's like, I just wasn't feeling it. (laughs) So basically if they're ugly, shallow, and creepy, find the exit ASAP. (laughs) Right. And everyone has their own definition of that too. Yeah. So, you know, I definitely believe that there is someone and probably multiple people out there for everyone So, you know, the person that maybe you think is shallow and creepy, someone else might really appreciate. Well, um, so I, I, interesting science transition here, but, you know, do you think, do you actually think that our brains may or may not be wired to click with each other? Because, you know, some, some statistics actually is that you know, and these are sad ones, unfortunately, Uh-oh. that that 50% of all marriages in the U.S. end up in divorce and people like there's like a decline in the U.S. population because like people aren't starting families and whatever. And so it's like, it's like, um, you know, are we, is this, are we, can we be wired, actually physically brain wired to click with somebody? Do you believe that that's possible? Like, can't, are we actually physically wired to click with somebody out there at, at, at some point? That's a really interesting question, you know, and I wonder if too, like, um, you know, if you think about if you're an extroverted person, you know, pretty much most dates you go on, 
you'll probably feel like you have a connection if it's with another person who's also fairly extroverted. But if you're an introvert, you know, you may have a harder time connecting and like starting that conversation. Um, or maybe if you're someone who is, you know, on the autism spectrum, you also might have a harder time connecting. Um, so I wonder if that also kind of depends on just like how you're you're wired too. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, actually, there's a lot of research on this. And you know what I learned? That's so cool. I learned that, you know, so in science, we have these things called animal models. And the point of animal models is to find something in the animal that's similar to us and then figure, the, figure it out in the animal and then apply it to us. And so actually, there are a species of prairie voles, which are just prairie-like moles, I guess. Mm-hmm. And there's actually two of them that are related, that are cousins of each other, prairie prairie voles and uh, montane voles. And so what we know about prairie voles specifically is that they form monogamous pair bonds when they reproduce. So when they make little pups, these prairie voles end up essentially mating for their whole life. In fact, they end up sharing their parental spaces, they share their parental roles, and they are effectively monogamous their entire their entire life once they reproduce. Whoa. I did and not know that. That's really cool. On the other hand, on the other hand, the montane voles, oh, they are out here, boy. They are <laughs> out here. They do not care. They are they're polygamous as hell. And they they will make pops with everything and never stay put and they always keep it moving. Mm-hmm. So actually these cousins of, of prairie, you know, uh, hamster basically look like hamsters are, they look identical, but they do the exact opposite thing. One is polygamous, one is monogamous. And it's like, yo, somebody get a scientist up in here and figure this out. But it might actually be a thing. What do you think about that? Hmm. I mean, I guess there are, I mean, that applies in humans too, you know, like there are many people who are monogamous. There are many people who have open relationships. There are many people who have, you know, polyamorous relationships. I would be very curious if there was like a difference in someone, like a difference in someone's like brain makeup or DNA. As a matter of fact, there is. So, oh my God. <laughs> As a matter of fact, there are these two neurotransmitters called oxytocin and, and vasopressin. And mm-hmm. what happened is, so some, what some scientists did is that they, they basically, basically they made it more difficult for the um, prairie, for the prairie rolls to produce oxytocin and vasopressin in their brain. So they inject, so they gave these animals like some therapy that caused the DNA in their body to have a easier or hard time producing oxytocin or vasopressin. And what they found is that when the genes that are responsible for vasopressin and oxytocin have been transcribed or produced, uh, these animals also had higher levels of the receptor thereof and found that um, that when these animals have more uh, activity of vasopressin and oxytocin, that they 
became monogamous. That the even the prairie the prairie voles, the uh, montane voles, when you gave them this vasopressin and and oxytocin, or gave them a therapy to let their body make more of them, they ended up becoming monogamous in after during the experiments. So they changed, they turned their whole wow. life around, and ended up sticking with the, with the first with the first uh, other person that they person prairie prairie well, montane bull that they that they made it with so they so they ended up just sticking together when they had an artificial boost of these neurotransmitters wow so they had different partners because they didn't have as much of those yes transmitters yeah yeah well, isn't that crazy wow that i wonder so has there ever been a study done in humans with this well, I I don't th- I'm not sure actually. I don't know. Um, that's a good question. Well, we'll have I, to do a follow up episode and find out. <laughs> I, I can find out. I can find out. I'm sure I can find out because these are like you know these are like not people, so you can kind of like give them some therapy, some experimental drug compound. But uh, I can find out. Like probably there's something out there that is non invasive which is just like brain surface expression of something like I'm sure, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but it looks like that maybe the brain does have really specific pathways for committed and non-committed relationships. So maybe that we are wired. So interesting. Huh? <laughs> yeah. And I wonder too, like people who like were in, because, you know, I feel like sometimes our society you know, makes people feel like they have to be in a monogamous relationship. Mm. Um, and I wonder if people, you know, maybe their brain just isn't wired that way. And then they later on become, you know, polyamorous and they're so much happier. I don't know. We got to find out more about this. You know, cult- cultural barriers and cultural differences combined with a brain that does the opposite thing is like torture. It's torture because like maybe your culture is telling you you have to go one way but then your brain is telling you to go another way. It's like nature versus nurture going on here, which is like a classic science question. (laughs) Right. And there are, I mean, depending on where you live in the world, um, you know, there's obviously different societal pressures. um, But I do feel like there are still, you know, a lot of us are influenced by our parents in terms of meeting a mate. And they sometimes have a lot to say about that. Boy, and you know, I, I don't know. This is kind of a question I thought of right now, but I'm thinking about this now, like as a millennial, like you know, dating. It's somebody my age is like. It's not like what my what my parents taught me. You know, like it's not like what I saw in movies. What I would see in movies is like you go to the high school dance or whatever, and you see this 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 girl, and you're and then you go out and you hold her hand somewhere in the park, and then. Her parents know their parents who know her parents and somehow you get together and, and, you know, you have a wife and kids and a family, you call it a day, but like, (laughs) and and you call it a day. And it's like now dating as a millennial, I just feel like, yo, like there's so many, and I don't mean to brag, but there's so many options. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. when I'm, when I'm swiping on these apps, uh, it's like, where's the end? Like settling down implies stopping and it implies taking what's in front of you and cooling it and cooling it off but when you have a dating app that's showing you something new every time like is there 
how do you even settle down when you have that feeling of, is there someone better out there? Yeah. And that is definitely one of the biggest issues that I see with dating apps is that people just don't see what is good right in front of them. And a lot of times can't be present in the moment because it's like, we know, okay, I can just check my phone and I'll have like 10 more dates, you know, in a couple hours. Um, but what about that person that's sitting right in front of you that you can't even focus on, you know? Yeah. And, you know, do, do you think that dating apps ironically have made dating harder as opposed to easier? Um, you know, I think it depends on how you approach it. Um, because for some people, you know, it's made it harder because it's now a game and people are just on there for fun. Um, and it's so much harder to find someone who wants something serious if that's what you're looking for. Um, but if you do it in the right way, um, you know, I had a lot of fun when I was on dating apps and dating. Mm. Um, you know, that's how I met my husband. And before I started matchmaking, you know, that was the only way that I thought of to date. So, you know, matchmaking really takes a slower approach versus, versus dating apps are really a, a quantity kind of game. <laughs> I see. So th it's not it's not that the grass is greener on the other side. It's it's the grass is greener where you're watering it type deal. Mm, yes, exactly. Because there definitely is, you know, I always tell people if you can use dating apps mindfully and with intention, they can be really awesome. But the issue is that most people don't use them that way. Got you. Most people don't use them that way. And it is like a game. Like it, when you, when you're playing, I hear I say playing, when you're using a dating app, it feels <laughs> yeah, like exactly. you're, it feels like you're playing a game and then like you get a match and you're like, you're like whoa, I, it's like winning the lottery. Oh man, mess with your head, man. It's messed up. I know. I mean, <laughs> I even have fun like going on dating apps and, you know, I got to stay current and see what people are up to out there. And, you know, it's fun to swipe through even for a married woman like me, just to see what's out there. Yeah, um, yeah just to judge people. It's fun judging people, isn't it? <laughs> on dating well, yeah, apps. And, and that's the other issue with it too, is dating apps are just this snap judgment of, you know, are your photos good enough? Are you hot enough? And, you know, are your is your bio or prompts or whatever app you're using, you know, are they witty, um, you know, or do they just say, I love tacos and dogs? <laughs> Uh, in a picture with a fish uh, or with your shirt off or something. Yeah, real, real, real unique there, fellas. Uh, anyway, <laughs> you know, so maybe, so how about this? Like we have dating apps that, you know, is more like a game. And as a millennial, like I feel like dating is like, ah, man, it's a crapshoot sometimes. But you know what? Do you have any success stories? What What does a success story look like? when Mr. A and Miss B, who you think would click really well, end up clicking really well. What, what, does the, what, what does a success story for matchmaking look like when two people who never met feel an, an electricity for each other? Like, uh, is there a beginning and a middle and an end for what a matchmaking, matchmaking success story looks like? 
That is a good question, and I hate to say, I will still say it depends on the person Um, because some people come to me and they're like, I want a partner, I want to get married, I want to have kids. Some people come to me and are like, hey, I just want a companion, I don't want to live with them, but like, I want a life partner. Um, And Mm -hmm. some people are like, hey, I just like literally don't know how to date and I just want to figure that out and I want to meet some awesome people. So, you know, of course I have the success stories of like, you know, people coming together and meeting on a blind date and, you know, now being married or in a relationship. Um, And those are obviously, you know, a great rewarding feeling. I had a, there's a couple that's been together maybe, I don't know, six, eight months now. And they met on a blind date. Um, She was like kind of wary to date during COVID. So she waited until she got vaccinated. And then this was one of her first dates um, you know, post pandemic and, you know, they had a ton in common, you know, they had all the good things that I, you know, look for in a pairing and, you know, it started slow. They didn't say right away, oh my God, this person is the one. Um, Mm. but you know, a month in they were like, you know, traveling together and doing stuff together and, you know, they're both just quirky and awesome and, you know, for them, like marriage maybe isn't really a thing that they would want, but just being life partners is great. So so the social modern matchmaking. So how how is it how is it doing these days? Like how how do people like, you know, if they if they're thinking about finding a matchmaker, you know, how what are the thoughts you should one one has when they're thinking about finding a matchmaker and and you know, tell us a little more about your 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 technique and what makes you unique as a matchmaker as opposed to like other other matchmakers out there. Right. And this is where I like love the world that I work in. Um, because I would say like 85% of the matchmakers are all super collaborative. So none of us are really, you know, fighting for a client or you know, trying to say that, oh, I'm this way and this other matchmaker isn't as good. You know, we are all really building each other up. Um, You know, we're building each other up and we're really sharing people back and forth, um, which is something that a lot of people don't know, where, you know, if I have someone who reached out to me in LA, I'm based in Denver, you know, I'll send that person to one of my matchmaker friends in LA and say, hey, this person's great. You know, they'll help you find love. So, you know, the matchmaking world is very busy this time of year as we're in, uh, you know, peak uh, cuffing it's, season. It's cuffing season. <laughs> yeah, so the summer is the slowest, you know, hot girl summer. Um, and then, you know, starting in September is when things get super busy. And, you know, I think when you're thinking of hiring a matchmaker, I know a lot of people's minds go to like, well, you know, what weirdos hire a matchmaker? You know, is this just like the socially awkward people who can't find anyone or don't know how to date? Um, you know, sure, we get those people, but, you know, we help them know how to date and not feel socially awkward. Um, you know, the majority of people who reach out to matchmakers are just super successful people, you know, who just don't really have time to date or they don't want to create a dating app profile because of their job or who they are. Maybe they don't want employees or coworkers to see it. 
um, you know, and it just, it takes a lot of time to date on your own. So it's kind of, um, the analogy I always use is, you know, you might hire someone to clean your house or you'd have someone, you know, do construction for you. Um, but you know, one of like arguably the most important things of finding a partner, you know, we really take on ourselves. So, you know, if you're considering hiring a matchmaker or even a dating coach, you know, both are great options. Um, but of course you don't need it. It's just kind of a nice to have to make your life easier. I bet. I bet. And, you know, it's kind of really relieving to know that someone's out there looking at, looking after you, trying to set you up and it's exciting in a way. And it's, it takes a lot of the pressure off, honestly, of like getting it wrong. Like that, you know, there's someone out there trying to curate this, this thing for you. And it's, it's nice. It feels like a real friend, you know, someone out there looking out for you. Yeah, and that's definitely the goal because, you know, being single can feel super lonely. Like literally being single is being alone, Um, you know, and it's being okay with that loneliness. But, you know, working with a matchmaker, at least how I do it, you know, you get a whole community of people because we do events, you know, my whole team of people is there to help you. So you feel like you're less alone and that you do have people to call on, you know, if all your friends are married, you know, they probably don't really get what you're going through yeah you know there was a time where you would finish work and you go to your colleague hey bro you want to grab some beers and the guy's like no man i gotta take care of my kids and so now you're gonna go have beer by yourself and just that didn't it's never happened to me but i know (laughs) i'm not saying it's happened to me but i am saying that it's happened to people (laughs) right you know people get you know it's hard when especially, you know, I'm a millennial. It's like every, all my friends are in different phases of life. You know, I still have the friends that are single. I have the friends that are engaged. I have the friends that are married. And then I have the friends that are having kids. And then I have the friends that have like multiple kids. So, (laughs) you know, it's like kind of, you don't always have your niche where everyone is in the same stage of life. You know, let's say somebody out there like, it realizes from listening to this, like, yo, I need a matchmaker ASAP because I'm too busy. <laughs> I'm too busy. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know myself and I need some help. Like what's the best way to approach this? Like, is it through your podcast or through your firm? Like how would somebody, what's the best way to approach you and find you? Yay. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you are curious about matchmaking at all, please reach out to me. Um, you can text me is honestly the easiest is um, 303-842-4762, or you can email me, abby at thesocialmm.club, and the website is modernmatchmaking.club, because you're part of our club when you join, and even if you're not in Denver or Colorado, please still reach out to me so I can make sure you are in good hands with one of my matchmaker friends. Um, I have one in pretty much every major city, And if I don't have one, I'll find a great one for you. And then, of course, you can also listen to my podcast, um, The Ghosted Podcast, where you can find – you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple. um, I don't even know all the places, but you know. Where you look for podcasts, (laughs) it's there. Um, And, yeah, I would love to chat with you. And if you're in the Denver area, um, you can come to some of our events too. The Ghosted Podcast. All my friends listen to the podcast, and that's what prompted me to start with myself. There you go. Nice. Well, hey, you're killing it. <laughs> uh, yo, it's a lot of fun. Just like, it's like therapeutic, you know, having a little podcast. Right. But, uh, so there we go. I mean, 
I think we need matchmakers to really uh, matchmakers out here to really be like this this like social glue just to get people together and see sparks fly because it's like such a talent it's such a talent and you know i i I think you really change people's lives when you introduce them you can be like yo i'm the one that introduced so and so to their husband or wife and that's like some kind of credit that you can't get anywhere else (laughs) i would think there's a lot of people that agree with you there (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much abby for having this conversation about matchmaking with me it was a lot of fun Well, this has been so much fun um, getting to know you and having this conversation. Thank you for listening to the first episode of season two of Deep Thought Science and Social Justice Podcast. I really hope you learned something about love, about the brain, about dating. If you want to support this podcast, got to follow the instagram deep underscore thoughts underscore podcast on instagram tie into that because that's where all the news for the podcast drops and i also launched a patreon uh while i always do this podcast for free this is a people-powered podcast that relies on your support to keep it going you know my goal is to ultimately expand this podcast into a more professional space and it's not something I can do by myself. You know, I want to get better recording equipment, better software, better recording spaces. And the Patreon is the way is the way to go for that. So take a look at it. The link is in the episode notes. And choose a level that works for you. If you have any questions, just DM me right on right on Instagram. I'm very interactive. I love to respond to all the messages. So just let me know. Uh, if you have an idea for an episode and you want to come through something science related definitely shoot me a dm i'm happy to talk about it in the meantime episodes will drop mm, once maybe twice a month uh on a on an as needed basis if i have the time to do it but it's a lot of fun to do i'm excited for it stay tuned for the next episodes i'm here for it deep thoughts let's go